This is Data Podcast. In the ever-changing world of data, this is the podcast packed full of information to keep you right on top of all the developments. From AWS and Azure, through to data science, big data, AI and NoSQL, and everything in between, we cover the essential updates from both a technical and non-technical perspective, including special guests and in-depth interviews. Now, please welcome your hosts, Rajiv Baha and Shabnam Khan, with today's episode of Data Podcast. Our guest today is Daniel Wetnack. Daniel is a PhD-trained data scientist working with Pachyderm, Daniel de- develops innovative distributed data t- uh, pipelines, which includes predictive models, data visualizations, statistical analysis, and more. He has spoken at conferences around the world, uh, ODSC, Spark Summit, Datapalooza, DevFest, Siberia, GopherCon, and more. Daniel teaches data science engineering with uh, Arden Labs, maintains the Go kernel for Jupyter, and is actively helping to organize contributors to various open source data science projects. I'm your host, Rajib. Welcome to our data podcast, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's good to have you as well. You know, how many of us may or may not know that Jupyter Notebook, which is a web application to write quotes in various languages, such as R, Python, Julia, Node.js, Golang, Ruby, and Scala, and so on. <laughs> That's a huge list. And I mean, that application in turn, like creates separate process in the kernel to receive output from the OS and shows that output to the end user, which ha- easily happens to be uh, the developer. Uh, now, one of the coolest thing uh, you do is to maintain the kernel on Go, aka Golang. And currently, like a, you know, like in the market, the data scientists tend to gravitate toward either R or Python as language. But you're playing with something a little bit more modern in like a new language in data science space. So why Go? How is it more useful in statistical analysis or data visualization? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, like you said, I, I think in general, most data scientists, most analysts and statisticians tend to reach for Python or R in in, in this space. Um, and so Go is kind of a, a newcomer to the space. But generally, how I phrase it is that Python and R and these you know other dynamically typed languages tend to be very convenient for data exploration and kind of automatically parsing data sets and doing quick manipulations and visualizations. And all of that's really powerful. And I, I, I don't uh, kind of, you know, I, I, I don't deny that, you know, all of those things are really powerful and, and people should, you know, still utilize those for, for what they're good for. But I think there's a real problem now in data science and uh, data analysis where, People are writing their code in these languages where there's a lot of convenience. There's a lot of things, you know, like Python pandas and, and other things that are truly powerful. But if, if you're not careful, you can kind of sweep a lot of things under the rug. And really, when we're talking about exception handling, what we mean is that a lot of times we're ignoring certain exceptions that might come up or edge cases that might come up in these languages. And that's a trade-off that we give for the convenience of dynamic typing and quick data exploration. So I think Go has, you know, it's a statically typed language. And so it, it kind of forces you to deal with a lot of issues around the types of the data that you're using. 
the form of that data and how you're parsing it, which I think builds a lot of integrity into your code. But it's also a language that is pretty simple to learn, and it's also a language that allows you to be very, very productive. Um, so I think it's a nice balance between being able to be productive in a language, but also build data applications that have a very, very high level of integrity. And kind of mm -hmm. by its very nature and by the fact that you're, you know, forced to deal with a lot of these um, errors and exceptions that, uh, that it kind of forces you to understand more about your data and, and build these, these applications with, with high levels of integrity. And then on top of that, you get, you know, a lot of nice things that people have found Go to be very good for in, you know, web applications and other things. Uh, in terms of being very, very easy to deploy, being able to compile down to a static binary, um, and also, you know, it's very fast and it handles concurrency very well, which is, is kind of nice for, for modern applications. So so you mentioned like a statically typed language, like does that mean like it's very, um, like you have to declare the type of the variable before you can use it? Is that what you mean? Yes, yeah, okay. so that's that's what I mean. Um there there is some functionality where uh you when you're def you know initially defining a variable mm -hmm. um then infer the type, but as soon as that variable has a certain type, it is it is that type and uh and and that doesn't change and when you declare new variables, you have to declare their type. And so this is a very a very strong way of of dealing with data, especially in data parsing and and dealing with um you know, tabular data and other types of data where um, it's very important that we understand, you know, when we have missing values, when we have, you know, unexpected values, when we have um, data with a form that doesn't fit what we, what we expected. So, for example, if I was, you know, calculating a maximum value um, for a column in a pandas data frame, I could use a very quick function that would calculate the maximum value um, but then if, if all of a sudden, you know, 99% of my values in that column just disappeared, so I have 99% missing values now, that function would still give me a maximum value. And unless I was careful, I would have no idea that my underlying data changed under the hood. Whereas if I was doing that in, in Go, I would, I would be forced to handle that exception in, in some way or another. I, I could choose to ignore it. Mm -hmm. But um, but it it would kind of force itself on me. Achieving reproducibility in data science, like what is that, and how do you uh, go about implementing it? Yeah, re reproducibility is another kind of big uh, big issue in data science right now. I would say, mm -hmm. um, I think this comes a lot from you know the fact that a lot of data scientists, a lot of analysts are coming out of the scientific areas, like uh, you know physics or statistics or, or wherever it is, not, not really out of software engineering, right? And so we're building kind of applications the way that we might have in research groups, which unfortunately, even though we call it, um, you know, science and academia, a lot of times those processes aren't, don't have high levels of reproducibility. You know, I think about what I did back in my PhD work and I know that it would be really hard for me to reproduce what I did before. And in, in the data science world and industry, when we're working on a team, 
this becomes very important because I want my team members to be able to reproduce the analyses, the modeling that I've done, both so that they can critique and review it, but mm -hmm. also so that they can incrementally improve upon it because, you know, none of us have all the knowledge we need to work on a team. But also, it's important, you know, just individually for us to be able to re reproduce what we've done, remind ourselves what we've done, so that we can improve on it, but also debug it, maintain it. And then finally, it's really important because, you know, in a lot of cases and more and more in recent times, um, we're going to run into compliance issues where we're going to have to give users an explanation for the things that we're doing with their data. And we're also going to have to, you know, maintain high levels of reliability in the way that we're handling the data. So if we don't have reproducibility, then that, that becomes a really big problem. So reproducibility, I would say, is, you know, the, the ability for us at every single stage of transformation where we're transforming data or where we're utilizing it in a model or making a prediction that we understand what data was input and we understand what code was used, and we understand how to exactly reproduce what we what we had before. Do you implement uh, any internal process or framework around that? Yeah, so I think there, you know, in terms of achieving reproducibility, I think there's a few different best practices that we can utilize as data scientists. Mm -hmm. um, first, I think that we should you know, as opposed to what our natural inclina inclination is a lot of times, we should really strive for and celebrate simple solutions to problems mm -hmm. because by their nature, you know, a simpler solution is easier to, you know, have a high level of integrity and have a high level of reproducibility. So if your problem can be solved by calculating a maximum value, you know, there's no reason that you should be implementing a convolutional neural net or, or something like this. So we should really strive for the most simple and interpretable solutions because those will just by their nature be more reproducible. Also, um, something that, that I really push and, and our team really pushes is that we as data scientists should also be versioning our data. We're kind of at this state now where um, we've, we've got to a point where we all understand that it's very important that we version our code, like in GitHub or with Git, but that's actually not enough for data scientists or data analysts because mm -hmm. I could have the same code implementing the same model and that could behave wildly different depending on what training data I put in, depending on what parameters I use. And so it's really, it's really not enough for us to version our code. We really need to be versioning our data with our code. And um, there's various projects around this, like the the DAP project and Infini and, and other projects. The project, open source project I work on is called Pachyderm and we offer a way for you to version your, your data so that you can have this kind of exact reproducibility. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the way that we, the, the way that we do it with, with, um, with Pachyderm, but there's various ways of doing it. The important thing is that you, you know, as, as, you know, software engineers have learned that you know, it's absolutely essential that we version our code. Data scientists need to learn that it's absolutely essential that we both version our code, but we also un understand exactly what data was input and output from our code on certain runs of that code. Mm -hmm.
So in a way, that kind of sounds like you want to get your data science projects into some sort of data warehouse with a slowly changing dimension as well as tracking your uh, tracking down your facts. I mean, is that what you're getting into? Um, sort of, yeah. So the the way um, the way that we kind of view it at Pachyderm is that you have various stages of your your processing. This might be training a model, or this might be making an inference, or it might be generating a plot. But um, whatever data is input to that stage should be um, versioned in what we call a data repository. Mm-hmm. And this is the way that we do it in Pachyderm. So think think about kind of like Git for data. So it's not so much like a structured data warehouse or a database. It's more of like a state of your data set. So mm-hmm. we maintain the state of your data set similar to you would maintain a state of your code in GitHub. Hmm. And that's really what feeds your your processing. Mm-hmm. And then when your processing is done, it commits out the output to another repository of data where that output is versioned as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, if you're trying to build a, a new kind of framework that would make sense to a data scientist, because my background is mostly in data warehouse and BI side of the world. So that's why uh, when I try to translate uh, the, some of the things uh, data scientists do into terms like, let's say, ETL uh, processes or uh, data mining uh, options in SSAS and those kind of things. Uh, that's why I was thinking, uh-huh. like, uh, if you're going to take uh, snapshots of different facts at a different time or keeping track of your history of uh, dimensions that you're using, uh, that's why I was kind of, like, trying to see where they map in uh, existing practices for data professionals in business intelligence versus uh, how data scientists are interpreting uh, or uh, structuring their framework. So that's a really cool. I, I learned quite a bit of stuff, cool stuff from you from there. Now, most of us are, you know, like, you know, like a heard of virtual machine tools such as VMware, virtual PC, virtual box. Are there like some sort of like a turnkey hub type sites where you can download, say, containers for various data science related, you know, uh, software or application or DBS platform. What, what would you um, say about that? Yeah, there, there definitely is. So, um, so a container is really, I, I mean, let's kind of um, define it maybe because I do agree it's not as familiar maybe in the data space as in some other spaces. But um, containers have been around a, a while, but basically what they mean is as opposed to like a virtual machine or um, uh, VM, uh, that, that sort of environment actually runs a, a, an OS within the VM or, or the virtual box. And as, as a result, you know, you have the OS, you have all the dependencies, all the libraries, you have your application. And so it's actually quite heavyweight as, as far as like its size. And, um, and also you have to generally specify the exact resources that you want that VM to take up. On the other hand, a a software container, it does have kind of a file system and libraries and your application in it, but it actually doesn't run its own operating system. So it actually runs on on top of, for example, in Docker, it runs on top of what's called Docker Engine, which, um, which shares, lets all of your software containers share the host um, kernel, Linux kernel. So actually, um, the containers then are much lighter weight. They're much smaller. 
Um, so software containers might be as small as like a few megabytes um, for a, for a Go container, up to like you know hundreds of megabytes for Python and other things, as opposed to like many many gigabytes for a virtual machine. So this makes it very much more portable, okay. and it also allows you to kind of very quickly pull a container, spin it up, and run it on any machine that is running Docker. So the main kind of container runtime that's used these days is, is Docker, although there are others. So, so yeah, the, the, this Docker container really, it, it allows me as a data scientist to package, package up my code into this portable Docker container that lets me run it on any machine that's running Docker, and it will behave in exactly the same way as it behaved when I ran it on my on my laptop. So this is again, you know, very important for reproducibility, but it also kind of immediately lets me make my data science applications um, portable and uh, you know and portable in a lightweight sort of way. Um, so in terms of like where people can get started and where ca they can find some useful Docker images, um, I would recommend uh, looking on. Docker Hub. So Docker Hub is kind of like a um, repository of images. It's what, what's called a registry of images, but it's a public registry where you can search around and, for example, you can get uh, a Docker image that runs Jupyter, or you can get a Docker image that runs Julia, or you can get a Docker image with scikit-learn in it and if you're doing Python. So you can get a lot of these images that are already kind of created for you from, from Docker Hub. And then as long as you're running Docker on your laptop or on your server, you can pull these down and run them, you know, the exact same way in, in any of those environments. So do those Docker containers achieve, like you said, um, lightweight status because uh, it doesn't involve um, overhead of installing an operating system. It will just share it with your uh, existing Linux operating system um, and work with that. Is that correct? That, that's correct, yeah. Okay. So you can still, so within the Docker container, there is a file system. So um, it could look like it's, you know, you can create a container that, you know, looks like it's running Ubuntu or um, CentOS or Alpine or a, a bunch of different, you know, types of um, mm -hmm. containers or even something uh, from scratch. But, uh, but underlying... Um, the container is running on this Docker engine, which is sharing um, whatever the host the host kernel is. Well, now, does it work on Windows? Uh, it does. Yeah, actually, I uh, so I don't run Windows, but I've talked to several different people, um, and they've made some really great strides. Uh, Docker has with Docker on Windows um, mm -hmm. in recent times, and I've actually heard that it's that it's very very good. So awesome. Um, so yeah, I would I would recommend um, any Windows people to look at it because it's also like I said it's it's much lighter weight than running VMs. So if that's something that you're doing a lot these days and you know constantly mm -hmm. downloading big files and mm -hmm. and managing you know resources, it, it would be good to good to look at. I think I do something similar for lightweight. I guess you know, what you call mobility of application. Uh -huh. So there's this like an application called portableapps.com and uh, okay. I use that to download uh, mobile uh, like a portable version of R Python into my flash drive 
which can um, uh-huh. you know like if i uh, which can hold about 120 gigs and uh-huh. so i use it to download or sort of uh, developer tools like a notepad productivity suites like a uh, open source uh, office applications so that if i'm going to a different client projects uh, at any given moment if i don't have the application that i need as long as I, I, they let me uh, you know i can access my usb drive i can run any applications that i need <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's great What are some best practices around deploying data science models? Um, do you do something similar to DBAs or data engineers as it relates to running a job at certain frequencies? Would it be day, daily, hourly, monthly, or one time? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll start out by, by talking about kind of some of my best practices, and then I'll, I'll, then I'll get into um, a little bit of how I, how I actually do things in, in practice. Um, I would say that Um, some best practices which are kind of connected with what we talked about before is that um, for me if you know reproducibility is a precursor to deployment so if you're not able to consistently run your your data data science applications and produce consistent results and you know handle errors in a consistent way then you know you have no business um, deploying things and Um, some people push back on me a little bit on this because certain models these days are non-deterministic and involve randomness. And um, I, I always say to them that, you know, even in those cases, if you run your model over and over again, it should produce results within a very p- predictable distribution of results. And so this, this is, you know, how you maintain reproducibility in those scenarios. You still, you still are able to run your model over and over and get, a range of results for which you expect, you know, your results to be. And so I think that's, that's kind of a precursor to, to deployment. But then um, in terms of actual, you know, deploying, I would say it's, it's best if you can uh, run, your, run your models, run your applications in, you know, in the same way with the same behavior as you are in your development environment. And What I mean by this is using something something like Docker that allows you to, you know, recreate your your environment, your specific dependencies, and, and run that as expected. And also trying to avoid any scenarios where when you put things into production, you kind of pull in maybe things that you think you'll be needing later on, like maybe distributed frameworks like Spark and Dask and other things that, Um, you might need eventually, but really it's best that if you develop, develop if you really need those, develop against those same things that you're going to use in production um, as when you actually deploy, because then there'll be a lot, a lot fewer surprises. Um, in terms of, of practicalities, so um, again, I, I work on this open source project called Pachyderm, and how we kind of deal with these deployments, and a lot of times the deployment struggles that data scientists, um, you know, encounter is that we, we deploy data pipelines. So a lot of times data science processes are not just one stage processes. There might be a, a pre-processing stage to prepare your data and then a training stage and then an inference stage and a visualization stage. And so to maintain high levels of integrity and also ease the deployment of those things, you can build 
um, data pipelines in Pachyderm, where each stage of that data pipeline is a Docker container. So that Docker container, again, will run the same way in that data pipeline as it does you know, on your local machine. And then the input and outputs of those Docker containers are these data repositories that I mentioned that are these version sets of data. Um, so what you get is this fully deployed distributed data pipeline where you exactly know the input and output of each stage at any given time, and you can actually track the full lineage of what happened in your deploy. So if you create a certain result, you can know exactly what model produced that result and what data was used to train that model and what you know raw data was used to create that training set, and you can have that, that full lineage. And you can also um, you know, automatically kind of scale each one of these stages by instead of running one single Docker container, running multiple containers um, for, you know, if you need to spread your processing over a data set or something like that. So this, this kind of provides a, a unified way of deploying data science projects, multi-stage data science projects, while maintai- maintaining a high level of integrity. And it also is agnostic to what tools you need because you can put anything in those Docker containers. So you can use Python, you can use R, you can use Go, Julia, you can just run a bash command if that's all you want to do. So um, yeah, I think having this unified way of deploying things and having this way of you know, knowing how your applications will behave is, is very important. Do you think uh, this best practice that you want to have, do you think uh, in future like data scientists will uh, work more with a uh, big data uh, type solutions? Uh, let's say if they try to keep track of, track of every data, uh, like version their data. Yeah. So I I think um, I mean big data solutions, particularly those um, written in Java Scala like Hadoop and Spark, um, they they will probably always be a, a part of the the picture. But I think in general, um, data scientists kind of reach for those tools and have definitely a hard time figuring out how to optimize them and kind of struggle because also a lot of data scientists don't write Java Scala and, um, and they, they have generally kind of a hard time dealing with these, um, with these frameworks. So our philosophy around kind of big data and, and big data sets is that um, really instead of having a, having a main unit of data processing in a distributed fashion being like a Java Scala mapper reducer class, um, our kind of main units of data processing are these software containers. So for example, if you were doing edge detection on millions of images and you had a container that you know, pulls an image in, does the edge detection and pushes the image out, um, well, you could spin up a hundred of those containers and send one one hundredth of your images through each container. And now what you've created is a scenario where you're able to process very large data sets, um, but your actual code that's doing the processing is still very simple and very easy to maintain because it doesn't have to worry about parallelism. It doesn't have to worry about data sharding. It just has to worry about pulling an image in and pushing the results out. So that's kind of our philosophy in general. I mean. There's certain edge cases where this, you know, doesn't um, apply quite as seamlessly, but um, I think in general that type of 
you know, big data processing is something that's very useful for for um, data scientists, and that's kind of what we're trying to achieve with uh, with the Pachyderm project. Well, uh, I learned quite a bit of info and new things uh, from you, so uh, I really had a blast ch chatting with you today, and um, hope to uh, uh, connect with you for another future podcast when time permits. From, yeah, from, that from would be side. great. Can you tell us where we can find you in social media or what, what is the best way to reach out to you? Because sure, yeah, there, there's a variety of ways. So um, I'm uh, dwhitena on Twitter, um, which is a, a great way to find me. Um, also, you can, you can find out more info on the open source um, uh, Pachyderm project at pachyderm.io. And actually, on the bottom of that page, you'll find a link to our public Slack channel. So this is a public Slack channel for the open source project. So I'm also, if you if you get on that Slack, I'm also D White N A on that um, Slack channel. So you can can always contact me there. Uh, then on the on the Go side, there's also actually a public Go Slack. So I think there's last time I checked, there's like. 15 or 16,000 people in the Slack. It's a really great resource if you're interested in Go. Um, and I'm D White and A there as well. Um, there's a there's a data science channel in that Slack, which is a, a great way to get involved with that. Um, and then finally, I, I kind of work on um, so on on GitHub. I'm D White and A there as well. And I'm also involved with this um, Gopher Data project. So if you go to GopherData.io. Um, there's a blog there and uh, some links to Twitter and, and Slack. And um, that's also a great place. There's a listing of, of data science, Go data science projects there um, if you're interested in kind of browsing that. Uh, that's awesome. Thank you for your time, uh, Daniel, and uh, wish you uh, all the luck uh, in your future data science projects. Excellent. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Same here. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Data Podcast. You're welcome to follow our hosts on Twitter at Rajib2k5, at Shabnam Khan2017, and on YouTube at youtube.com slash Rajib2k5. Our episodes are also available via iTunes, SoundCloud, Google, and other podcasting platforms. Thank you for tuning in.